Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. In this episode, we'll start off by taking a look at Final Fantasy VIII, a game that was massive for its time, spanning four discs and over one and a half gigabytes of data. The expansive size of this adventure meant that the game's text and dialogue were similarly extensive, and would be a large undertaking to translate into other languages. When it came to translating the game into English, according to former Square localizer Alexander O. Smith, the US localization team had to use a GameShark cheat device to view the game's text for easier translation. This was because Square's Japanese headquarters didn't think to send the translators a copy of the game's text files along with the game. Smith told Polygon, You know, they were using GameSharks to hack Final Fantasy VIII so they could get to text because nobody would give them files. Because, oh, you need files to do translation? That was news to the dev team at that point. So that sort of complete lack of communication was emblematic of those days. But Final Fantasy VIII wasn't the only game by Square to have translation issues. Final Fantasy VII is the subject of debate when it comes to poor translations, as many believe the game's Spanish translation to be amongst the worst localization efforts in gaming. It was even dubbed the Spanish Zero Wing by some, referring to the infamously bad Zero Wing translation which gave us the All Your Base Are Belong To Us line. This translation of Final Fantasy VII sometimes calls the player's party of characters a fiesta, which means a literal celebration. The translation even refers to female characters like Aerith, Yuffie, and Tifa as if they were men. We could list many more of its faults, but we'd rather preserve our sanity and talk about another great turn-based RPG on the original PlayStation, which had a much better localization, Luna 2 Eternal Blue. The team working on the game's localization decided to include an easter egg in place of an oversight that was present in the original Japanese release. In the Japanese game, positioning Hiro and Gwyn in a certain spot against the Guardian will result in an endless gameplay loop. This is because, when killed, Hiro and Gwyn's bodies prevent the Guardian from moving to reach Lucia, and Lucia cannot attack in this battle, and so cannot kill the Guardian. But if the same situation is replicated in the English version of the game, the small, cute, non-playable character, Ruby, will kill the boss with a single hit to stop the loop. For today's random piece of trivia, we're going to talk a little bit about Ninja Bread Man. While the game is often recognized because of its infamy as an all-around terrible game, it was once planned to be recognized by another means entirely. The game was initially in development as a reimagining of the Zool series. Zool was considered to be a sort of mascot for the Amiga brand of computers in the early 90s, similar to how Crash Bandicoot was closely associated with the original PlayStation. Data Design Interactive, the company who created Ninja Bread Man, were given the rights to create an original title using the Zool license. But as a result of Zool's shareholders being unimpressed with the work that had been made on the franchise's revival, they revoked all of Data Design's rights to the property. Instead of losing the work that they had put into the project, Data Design reworked the project into an original brand of Ninja Bread Man. In this episode, we'll be starting out with some trivia from the hit animated sci-fi comedy, Rick and Morty. 
With the release of both Pocket Mortys in 2016 and Virtual Ricality in 2017, the franchise has firmly established itself as more than just a cartoon, expanding into a full-blown multimedia property. The games are a great bit of fun on the side, but could there be more to them? Surprisingly, according to the show's co-creator Justin Roiland, all the Rick and Morty games are actually canonical to the show. Their existence within the show's continuity is possible because Rick and Morty doesn't take place in just a single universe, but across an entire multiverse. Rick and Morty uses the many worlds interpretation of the multiverse hypothesis, which basically means the series can utilize an infinite number of universes. And because there's an infinite amount of Ricks and Mortys, the franchise must cover any conceivable scenario. As a result of this, Roiland believes every possible story would already exist in the Rick and Morty multiverse, and are therefore canon. Speaking of animated sci-fi comedies that got their own video games, there was an interesting event in the Futurama franchise, where cutscenes from its 2003 video game were repackaged and sold on a DVD. The cutscenes were meshed into a 30-minute video dubbed The Lost Adventure, and slightly edited to remove fourth-wall-breaking moments and minor characters, as well as changing some sound effects. The episode was included as a bonus feature of the DVD for the Futurama movie, The Beast with a Billion Backs. Interestingly, this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment inclusion. According to Futurama co-creator David X. Cohen, the team were trying to get The Lost Adventure out for years. Several members of the show's crew worked on the cutscenes, and the team was so proud of it they considered it the honorary 73rd episode of the cartoon. Another beloved sci-fi series is Nintendo's Metroid franchise. Although the series has many on-the-nose references to things like the Alien movies, there's a few obscure nods to other products. The planet SR388 was the home of the Metroid race, and was the setting for Metroid 2 Return of Samus. Its name may seem like a bunch of random characters, but these letters and numbers do have meaning to them. According to Samus's character designer Hiroji Kiyotake, SR388 gets its name from the popular Yamaha SR400 series motorcycle engine. Although the engines were branded SR400cc, they actually have a slightly smaller capacity of 388cc, and so the team incorporated its true specs into the name. For this episode's random piece of trivia, we've decided to talk about an obscure Sega game, the often overlooked Sega Saturn title, Astal. The game was a 2D action platformer by Sega. It sold poorly in North America, which might have had something to do with the game's name not appearing on the spine of the box art. Though the sales may be due to its very short length, which led to the game being poorly reviewed by some critics. Although the game's obscurity is interesting, the most fascinating part of the game can't be seen by playing it. Within the game's data is an unused sprite of Mario. This is particularly interesting as Sega and Nintendo were rivals at the time of Astal's development. Nintendo probably wouldn't have allowed the Italian plumber to be featured in the game, so it may have been left in by Astal's developers just for fun. It's also worth noting that the style of the sprite doesn't match the game, which backs up the idea this was added by developers for their own amusement. Love them or hate them, internet memes are a part of our culture and often find their way into the media we consume. The video game giant Nintendo is one organization that often includes memes and pop culture references in their games. Not only do they reference memes during the localization process, but also seemingly at their headquarters in Japan. In one instance, Nintendo may have shown their appreciation for memes directly inside one of their consoles. 
In the Nintendo Switch's photo album setup page, an illustration strongly resembles the character Go from the Japanese porn film called A Midsummer Night's Lewd Dream. The film's character became part of a popular meme in Japan due to the production's over-the-top acting. Including this meme was harmless and wasn't even noticed by most gamers. However, one of Nintendo's references to a meme left some fans rather upset. A number of Zelda fans were displeased after seeing translation differences between the releases of Triforce Heroes in the US and Europe. A diary in the game was a major factor in this anger, with the European translation reading, and that may be precisely why the ancient ruins I had encountered had been left undisturbed for me to explore. Whereas the American translation reads, Still, coming here at least afforded me the rare chance to explore these ancient ruins. So ancient. Such ruin. For those who are unaware of the meme being referenced, the end of the US translation makes reference to the popular Doge meme. Fans felt the American translation's inclusion of the meme was gratuitous and in bad taste, as the meme was never a part of the original text and arguably added nothing to the game. Controversy and Nintendo often go hand in hand, as can be seen with the 2009 case of Nintendo vs James Burt. James, a 24-year-old Australian, had uploaded a copy of New Super Mario Bros Wii to a file-sharing network prior to the game's official release in Australia. After Nintendo caught wind of the situation, they pushed to receive compensation for the gamer's direct copyright infringement. In a news article on the official Nintendo Australia website, the company claimed to employ the use of sophisticated technological forensics to identify the individual responsible. The result of the lawsuit was compensation of 1.5 million Australian dollars to be paid to Nintendo by Mr. Burt. In a statement, Burt advised others not to repeat his actions and that he'll be paying this debt for the rest of his life. The story doesn't end there, however, as three years after the case, Burt received a surprise phone call from his local EB game store informing him that he had been selected by Nintendo to pick up a package from the store. Inside, he found a statue of Ganondorf, which was given away to pre-orders of the UK release of The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker HD. Nintendo gave no official reason to sending Burt the statue. James commented on Reddit saying, I think it's ironic that out of everyone in Australia they could have chosen, I get given the Ganon statue for being a good customer of Nintendo. I was told I was chosen from Nintendo and received it today. I'm very grateful they chose me, don't get me wrong, and I do love Nintendo even after being sued. And EB Games had no info on it, just that I won. No papers came with it, just the figure in a Nintendo brown box. And for this episode's random piece of trivia, we'll be talking a little bit about the Amiga and the United States. 19 public schools in the Grand Rapids School Public School District in Michigan used the Commodore Amiga to control their heating and air conditioning for more than 30 years. The system features a 1200-bit modem and wireless radio signal to toggle boilers, fans and pumps across the district. Efforts were made in 2015 to replace the systems, as they are of course becoming very dated and could stop functioning at any time. Responding to what they would do if the system just stopped working, Tom Hopkins, the GRPS maintenance supervisor, said they would look on eBay to buy a new one, which is where the current one came from. Many of us find it easy to separate the virtual world of video games from real life, particularly when they're cartoony or abstract, like Minecraft. However, games can teach us things about the real world, and can affect how and what we learn. 
Because of this, Minecraft's developers felt they had to remove a feature where players tamed parrots by giving them chocolate chip cookies. In real life, chocolate chip cookies can kill birds if they ingest them. This is because the compound theobromine is present in chocolate, which happens to be toxic to birds and other pets. The concerning fact was brought to light by Reddit user 1JL, whose post in the Minecraft subreddit quickly received nearly 40,000 upvotes. It was generally agreed that children who played Minecraft were impressionable and may unintentionally kill their pet birds by imitating the game. Lead creative designer on Minecraft, Jens Bergensten, told Vice, if Minecraft has any effect on children's behavior, we want it to be a positive one. Our reasoning for originally using cookies was twofold. It gave cookies a reason to exist within Minecraft, and it was a subtle reference to the Nirvana song, Polly. In the 1.12 build of Minecraft, the game was updated so that using cookies on parrots would kill them instead, and to tame them, seeds must be fed to the birds in place of cookies. Sticking with cookies, let's talk about the origins of Yoshi's Cookie. This Super Nintendo puzzle game wasn't always a part of the Mario series. While details are hazy, we can determine that the game's name was originally Hermetica. The game was first shown in 1992 at the Consumer Electronics Show. Nintendo bought the license for both the NES and Game Boy versions of Hermetica, and created Yoshi's Cookie by simply injecting Mario characters. Bulletproof Software still held the rights to their original SNES game, however, so Nintendo provided the devs with a license to use Mario characters and the Yoshi's Cookie branding. Wanting to create a fresh puzzle game, the team employed the skills of Tetris creator Alexei Pashitnov to design their levels. Evidence of this origin can be found hidden within Yoshi's Cookie on the Game Boy. A debug mode can be accessed in the game with a Game Genie. The title for this screen reads Hermetica Debug Mode in reference to the game's early development. Continuing with the theme of cookies takes us somewhere unexpected, the gory 1997 PC shooter Shadow Warrior. In the game's fourth level, Dark Woods of the Serpent, there's a destructible wall which can be blown up to reveal a small room. In the room is Tomb Raider's Lara Croft, chained up in a cell. When you approach her, Lo Wang will comment, <laughs> She's raided her last tomb. Inside her cell, the player can find one of the game's many collectible fortune cookies. Interestingly, Lara originally had a different appearance for this easter egg, one which was far more risque. And now for today's random piece of trivia, let's talk about Karen, a character that debuted in Street Fighter Alpha 3 in 1998. That is, it would be her debut to most players. Her true game debut came in 1997 in Marvel Super Heroes vs. Street Fighter, where she could be found hidden away in the game's code. While being unfinished, several prototype sprites can be found in the game's graphics, though her appearance does differ from Street Fighter Alpha 3. In this initial design, she is little more than a minor edit of Sakura, giving her combat boots and a different head. Developers and publishers can show creativity outside of just the contents of their games. One example of this can be seen with a clever jab at those who purchased The Bard's Tale on PlayStation 2, Xbox, or PC. On the game's disc is the line, for a really disturbing image, flip disc over. This was of course intended as a joke, as flipping the disc over would reveal nothing but the reflective surface of the disc, and like a mirror, show the reflection of whoever's in front of it. This wasn't the only gimmick to be featured on a game disc. Some publishers even used their game discs to help immerse the player in other ways, as can be seen, or rather smelt, with FIFA 2001. 
The game's PlayStation 1 disc featured a special scratch and sniff feature physically on the disc itself. When scratched, the coating released the odour of football pitch turf, but seemingly only in the PAL region. Another game that experimented with scratch and sniff tech was Gran Turismo 2, but again, only in the PAL region. In Europe, the game came on two discs. One red arcade mode disc and a GT mode disc that was blue. Gently rubbing the blue disc with your hand or a cloth would release the scent of rubber and fuel to replicate a pit stop smell. Even Nintendo had experimented with Scratch and Sniff in the manual for Earthbound on the Super Nintendo, but another developer planned to use the tech before Gran Turismo, FIFA or even Earthbound were in development. At one point, Hideo Kojima actually wanted to coat the floppy disks of his 1988 adventure game Snatcher in a chemical that, when heated in the computer, would give off the smell of blood. This was to give the stench of a murder scene and make the game more immersive. Another game that came with some interesting disc shenanigans is Castlevania Symphony of the Night on the original PlayStation. The team at Konami wanted to give players a little bonus with the data on their disc, and made it so that putting the disc into a CD player or booting it through the PlayStation CD player menu would play a message. When played, the game's protagonist, Alucard, can be heard saying, As you can see, this is a PlayStation Black disc. Cut number one contains computer data, so please don't play it. But you probably won't listen to me anyway, will you? The track then proceeded with the music that's been playing throughout this video. This next bit of trivia isn't quite about what's on a game's disc, but rather what's on a game's box art. Phoenix Games, who made the terrible PlayStation 2 game Peter Pan, are known for their shovelware, but in more recent times they've also been exposed for their repeated acts of plagiarism. If you look closely at the background of Peter Pan's box art, you might realise that the island is actually taken straight from the official artwork of Kingdom Hearts Destiny Islands. And for today's random piece of trivia, we're going way back to the 1989 NES game, Dragon Spirit The New Legend. During the final moments of the game's good ending, Princess Iris can be seen riding upon the dragon's head. In the Japanese version of the game, pressing select 20 times will cause Iris's skirt to lift up and give everyone a little look. This little secret was removed from the game's international releases, but the sprite of Iris's skirt lifting up still remains in the game's data. To the surprise of nobody, the HBO series Game of Thrones received several video game adaptations after its debut. These titles range anywhere from home console games to Facebook games, and have been played by an unsurprisingly large amount of people. One example of this can be seen with the Facebook game Game of Thrones Ascent. The game's servers crashed entirely when it first launched, due to hundreds of thousands of people trying to log in. One person who hasn't played a single one of them, however, is the author of the original Song of Ice and Fire books, and co-executive producer of the show, George R.R. R. Martin. Martin seems to have no distaste for the Game of Thrones games, or even gaming in general. In fact, he quit video games in the early 80s due to some degree of addiction. Martin told the LA Times, It wasn't that I didn't like them, it was that I liked them too much, and I think I probably lost, uh, you know, a novel or two there. Uh... Another interesting connection between gaming and Game of Thrones is that the show's co-creator, Daniel Brett Weiss, wrote for the cancelled Halo movie in 2006. And speaking of Halo, and games based on or inspired by books, the concept of the ring-shaped megastructures in the Halo franchise was inspired by the Ringworld series of books by Larry Niven. 
The halo structures are remarkably similar to the megastructure in the Ringworld series, as anyone who has read the books will tell you. However, the Ringworld is enclosed around a large star, whereas the halos orbit smaller bodies, and are themselves much smaller. What's interesting about this is that publishers of the Halo novels, Del Rey Books, actually contacted Niven about writing a Halo novel. Niven turned down Del Rey's offer, as he only writes for a series if he's already familiar with the source material. Microsoft actually sent Niven an Xbox with a copy of Halo to persuade him, but to no avail. Sticking with the theme of books, let's talk about the game I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream which is based on the short story of the same name. In the final part of the game, while playing as Ellen, she'll say, I'm an engineer, not a brain surgeon. This is thought to be a reference to Dr. McCoy from the original series of Star Trek, as he'd often say, I'm a doctor, not a, then state an occupation. One of the game's designers was Harlan Ellison, who also voiced the supercomputer Am, and wrote the book the game is based on. Ellison would also sell scripts to TV shows, and one of these shows was the original Star Trek. And for today's random piece of trivia, we'll be taking a look at a company we've already talked about on this channel, Phoenix Games. Last time we talked about Phoenix Games, we demonstrated that they had stolen artwork from Kingdom Hearts and used it for the cover of their Peter Pan game. It turns out this wasn't the only time that they had plagiarized artwork. The pre-release box art for their arcade shooter, Dead Eye Jim, reused art from the cover of Outlaw on the Commodore 64. Phoenix Games managed to change the art before Dead Eye Jim was published, probably to avoid being sued into oblivion. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Mario Kart has always been a fun game for children and adults alike. Mario and his friends have some heated battles and races, and taunting each other is all part of the fun. However, one character seems to have taken taunting a little too far. In update 1.1 of Mario Kart 8 Deluxe on the Switch, a gesture for the Inkling Girl was altered. The original animation involved the girl bending her arm at the elbow, gripping her bicep with the other hand, and emphatically raising her fist. This could have been interpreted as a gesture known as bras d'honneur, or Iberian slap. While the gesture isn't offensive in Japan, across some of Europe and Latin America it's akin to flipping someone off. In the update, the gesture was changed so that the Inkling girl just raised her fists to her opponent in a movement that looks more like a cheer. From one Nintendo Kart racer to another, let's talk about Diddy Kong Racing. Within the game's data are two unused characters, but the only way of accessing these in-game is by using a cheat device. The first of these unused characters is the pterodactyl seen in the Hot Top Volcano stage. Using action replay codes, players can set up a race where every character is the pterodactyl. Regardless of whether the player or AI wins these races, the You Lose jingle will play. The game may believe that a pterodactyl crossing the finish line means that the player has lost. This suggests that the player is supposed to race against it as a main character, but because the game only detects the pterodactyl crossing the finish line, it's assuming the player has lost. The pterodactyl also has an unused getting hit sound effect, which adds to the idea of there being a planned pterodactyl boss. The second character is a snowball, which follows a similar set of rules in its AI to the boos featured in Mario games. 
If racing as this snowball, the player is unable to move. However, computer players can proceed through the stage as long as the player is facing away from them. This means that their movement is never seen as they remain completely static when in view. From one unused feature in a racing game to another, Penta Penguin of Crash Team Racing, who's unlockable by using in-game cheat codes, has unfinished programming in the game's North American release. Acquiring the Mask power-up will display an Uka Uka icon, but will summon Aku Aku instead. Since either mask is summoned based on the character's morality, this oversight has left some players wondering whether Penta Penguin is a hero or a villain. Also bizarre, some of Penta's voice effects are just sounds penguins make, but there are two samples that sound more like a human talking. These are actually placeholder sounds that were meant to be removed from the final game. The samples are of an unidentified man reading the file names. Penguin Ye 1, Penguin Ye 2. This was fixed in the European release. And for this episode's random piece of trivia, let's look at The Sims 3 Roaring Heights DLC. By looking at the bizarre letters on the side of the school building, we can see that this is simply a phrase which has been flipped upside down and reversed. By fixing the transformation, we can actually see that the school's name is... Um... Yeah, I'll just put it on screen. The Virtual Boy has a reputation for being, generally speaking, not good. It sold poorly and had very few games. Nintendo released barely any titles from their major franchises on the system, and those that were released felt subpar. One series that had no love on the console was Metroid. However, Samus has a pretty cool appearance in the game Galactic Pinball. The Cosmic Stage features a hidden bonus level. To access this stage, the player must hit their ball into the top right of the board, start the bumper clash sequence, and then break all of the bumpers. An S symbol from Super Metroid will then replace the bumpers, and the ball will transform into Samus's ship. An audio cue will say, Roger, Samus. And the Super Metroid theme will begin to play. The player must then shoot all of the on-screen enemies, including Metroids. Speaking of pinball, an interesting and somewhat controversial statement once came from a pinball games developer. The developer in question is Stuart Gilray, director of Pinball Challenge Deluxe on the Game Boy Advance. Due to a hardware issue, Pinball Challenge Deluxe would fail to save any data once it was turned off, even though a save feature was coded into the game. After being contacted by a member of the now-defunct Pocket Heaven forums, Gilray stated, We created the game to allow saves, etc., but for some reason, I'm guessing budgetary, Ubisoft at the last minute decided to not manufacture the game with EEPROM save memory. He also went on to say that the game is capable of saving if played through the use of a flash cartridge which was commonly used for pirating games. This led to Gilray's controversial statement, which was, Oddly enough, I encourage people that play Pinball Challenge Deluxe to play it on a backup cart just so to allow saving. It seems that developers who have somewhat condoned piracy aren't that rare when it comes to pinball devs. Digital Illusions was a successful developer who made multiple pinball titles, including Pinball Dreams, Pinball Fantasies, and Pinball Illusions, and later became the EA studio DICE. One of Digital Illusions' co-founders, Andreas Axelsson, got into games partly because of piracy, which at the time made games more accessible. In an interview with Lemon Amiga, Axelsson said, 15 years ago, there was no internet to speak of, very few games magazines, and even fewer places you could buy games. 
I would probably never have become so interested in games if I hadn't had access to cracks. On the other hand, when Pinball Dreams was released, I formatted every single crack I had and started buying everything. Today though, you can buy almost everything from anywhere, so I think the excuse of availability holds less today. For today's random trivia, we wanted to show a little something from the Klonoa series. For the remake of the original game on the Nintendo Wii, the team considered a special redesign for the title's North American release. The design featured Klonoa without his iconic hat, and a different set of ears. Several of the original game's developers came back for this project, and they apparently thought Klonoa's design was a bit old-fashioned and in need of a change. The concept was scrapped, however, due to negative reception from both critics and fans alike, some even comparing it to Poochie, a character in The Simpsons used to represent needless changes to television series. Today we'll be talking about how the stories of video games are changed before they release. The beginning of a character's creation is always interesting, but the details of how a character came to be are usually hazy. Rayman is a character whose origin has always been left ambiguous within the series lore. However, his creation in the real world reveals some interesting choices that were dropped during development. The original story of Rayman was considerably different from the game's final release, initially following the story of a young boy named Jimmy. An article published on an old Usenet board provides us with the game's original press release. Join Jimmy, a 10-year-old who escapes reality by entering Here It's Cool, a fantasy kingdom he created within the realms of his computer. When in Here It's Cool, Jimmy becomes Rayman, a superhero who gives animated life to everything around him. Mushroom, insects, trees, rocks, mountains, creating an unlimited amount of friends and kingdoms. But an evil power has entered Here It's Cool and is out to destroy everything he has created. He must use his superhero powers to save his friends before it's too late. Look for Rayman on the Jaguar during the fourth quarter. We hear it's cool. <laughs> That's comedy. This plotline was scrapped entirely by the time of the game's launch in 1995, almost a year after the game was initially slated to release. Games changing their plots is nothing new, of course, as can be seen with 1999's Indiana Jones and the Infernal Machine. The game's plot was retooled so that George Lucas could use the concept of aliens in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and have it be a first for the franchise. The game's designer, Hal Barwood, told Adventure Classic Gaming, Independently of George, I got interested in propelling Indy into the Cold War environment of the 1950s with Russians as antagonists and flying saucers as the prize. George vetoed the idea, reserving UFOs for what was to become Crystal Skull. I kept the Cold War but veered away to Babylon for the prize. This shouldn't come as a surprise, as Lucas has a track record of causing issues for the games he meddles with. For the 2008 third-person shooter Fracture, Lucas took issue with the protagonist's name. After working together and deciding on a suitable name, the development team revealed the hero's name to be Mason Briggs. However, according to an anonymous designer who spoke with Game Informer, in his first viewing of Fracture, Lucas said the game looked good, but that he didn't like the name Mason Briggs. Lucas said something to the effect of, It doesn't really fit. When he jumps on stuff, he moves pretty fast. I like BJ Dart. The team went back to the drawing board again, trying to find a name that might be more appealing to Lucas. They ultimately landed on Jet Brody, and you might be surprised to learn that Lucas's son is also named Jet. And now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia. This time we're going to dip into the Olympics, the Video Olympics on the ZX Spectrum. 
The sponsorship banners in the background of each event feature a number of parodies of popular brands, including Adidas, and even one which reads Cocaina in a visually similar style to the Coca-Cola logo. The game was developed in Spain, and when translated from Spanish, the word says cocaine. This was likely added as a small joke by the team, and is possibly a reference to the fact that when Coca-Cola was first invented, it contained cocaine. Also of interest, it seems like the game's title screen music is just a simplified version of the Superman theme tune. And today, we'll be talking about comic book-based games. Superhero franchises seem to be all the rage these days, but to be fair, they've always been popular. This is especially true for Marvel's top dog, Spider-Man. As well as a successful comic series and a string of blockbuster films, there's plenty of Spider-Man games, and some of them are quite interesting. One interesting Spider-Man tidbit that stands out can be found in Spider-Man 2 Enter Electro for the original PlayStation. The game has a cheats menu where the player can input words to unlock things like extra costumes or even a big head mode, and if the player inputs an incorrect cheat, the incorrect entry will be erased. However, if the player inputs any kind of profanity, Spider-Man himself will jump on screen and change the word into something nice, like puppy or flower. This will even happen if the player tries to disguise the profanity within other words or letters. Another Spidey-related secret can be found in X2 Wolverine's Revenge in all versions besides the Game Boy Advance release. If the player manages to collect all of the game's dog tags, a deleted scene will unlock. In the scene, a shadowy figure stalks Wolverine, who Logan then attacks. The figure turns out to be Spider-Man, who's dropped by to offer Wolverine his help in battling Magneto. Keeping with the theme of comic book-related games, let's take a look at some unused content from the action RPG Marvel Ultimate Alliance. The game was developed by Raven Software, but ported to the PSP and Wii by Vicarious Visions, who are a subsidiary of Activision. To promote the Wii version of the game, someone at Activision or Vicarious Visions thought it would be a good idea to try and include Nintendo characters in the game. Both Link and Samus were put into the game, and they were demoed to Nintendo to get the company's approval and input. However, Nintendo did not approve Activision's request, and there are several ideas as to why. Firstly, the characters seem to have been demoed to Nintendo in the PlayStation 2 version of the game by a genius. This could have understandably rubbed Nintendo the wrong way, as presenting their characters on a competitor's hardware could be seen as insensitive. Some also believe it was because Activision demoed the characters to Nintendo before they had gotten approval, and it came across as presumptuous. Or it could simply be that Nintendo didn't think the game or demonstration was of a high standard and refused. According to artist Jason Harlow, Link's model was entirely finished in just a week, so this demo may have been hastily made and lacked polish. We've been stuck on Marvel for a while now, so let's stop off at a DC Comics franchise. Batman The Brave and the Bold was developed by WayForward for the Wii and Nintendo DS, and featured tracks from seasoned game composer Jake Kaufman. Two unused tracks can be found on the Wii game's disc titled Batman underscore song.og and song underscore driving.og. What's interesting about these tracks is that they're from the Cowboy Bebop anime soundtrack. According to Kaufman, these tracks were placeholders and were the only music in the game for about eight months of its production. 
And for today's random piece of trivia, let's take a look at Adventure Time. Hey Ice King, why'd you steal our garbage for the Nintendo DS and 3DS? At Comic-Con 2012, Adventure Time's creator, Pendleton Ward, said that when the game is beat, it would play a video of him in a chair congratulating the player, in a similar fashion to Pepsi Man on the PlayStation. You got it! Yeah! Yeah! When the game released, however, the gag was absent. It's believed this scene was swapped out for the secret screen in the 3DS game, where upon entering the Konami code, a pixelated pen ward will dance next to Finn and Jake, singing secret screen. Today we'll be talking about gaming in the music industry. Cross-media promotion is nothing new. It explains why we have so many games based on movies and vice versa. The music industry made use of people's interest in gaming during the 90s, with popular bands being hired by publishers to promote their games. One of these bands was London pop group Right Said Fred, famous for their hit single, I'm Too Sexy For My Shirt. The group were hired by Sega of Europe in 1994 to promote the latest Sonic game, Sonic the Hedgehog 3. The band's single, Wonder Man, was reworked by Sega to help promote the game, and featured lines such as, So fast it hurts, you'll get a slap. If you take a nap, he'll spin attack. The song's music video also prominently featured the game, along with Stephen O'Donnell, an actor who was considered the face of Sega's European advertising at the time. The track reached number 55 in the UK singles chart, and was featured on the hits compilation album Now That's What I Call Music 27. While admirable, the song has nothing on the success of the Italian Europop group Eiffel 65. Eiffel 65 are best known for their one-hit wonder, I'm Blue Dabu Dee Dabu Die, and they wanted to reference their love of gaming. The band did this on their album, Europop, with the song, My Console. The song is essentially a love letter to the original PlayStation, and references Tekken 3, Metal Gear Solid, Resident Evil, Gran Turismo, Omega Boost, Bloody Raw, Ridge Racer, Oddworld, Winning Eleven, and the X-Files game. Other bands don't seem as fond of the PlayStation or video games in general. The Californian punk band Smut Peddlers seem to think the world would be better off without gaming. Their song PlayStation Generation takes a cynical jab at gaming and media consumption, and what they might be doing to young adults. Some of the song's lyrics are, It wouldn't be the endo if you smashed up your Nintendo. For once in your life, make a sound decision, kill your <coughs> television. PlayStation Generation. In direct contention with Smut Peddlers is the band Horse the Band, who have made an entire career out of embracing their video game systems through their music. Some of the band's songs directly reference specific games and characters, such as the track Pole's Voice, Big Blue Violence, and Birdo, which describes a typical encounter with the enemy in Super Mario 2. The band even pioneered a subgenre of rock music called Nintendo Core. And for today's random piece of trivia, we'll be taking a look at the PlayStation RPG series Ark the Lad. Ark the Lad was originally a Japanese exclusive series, but this changed in 2002. All three of the PlayStation games were brought to the West in the Ark the Lad collection by Working Designs, which also came with a making of bonus disc. If the player boots up the bonus disc and presses circle, square, circle seven more times, square, then start, a browser window will open. This window shows the contents of the disc currently loaded, and the player can even swap out the discs to look at the contents of other games. Pressing X will load whatever file is selected, and this can be done to all kinds of files such as cutscenes. Be careful though, as this can apparently corrupt the contents of a memory card if it's plugged into the console.
Today we'll be focusing on video game contests. Skyrim was released back in November of 2011 and has amassed over 30 million sales over the years. However, despite its popularity, you might not know that the creators of Skyrim, Bethesda, opened a challenge for a willing fan to not only deliver a baby on the release date of Skyrim, but also to name the child Doverkeen. On November 11th of 2011, the winners Megan and Eric Kellermeyer named their newborn son Doverkeen Tom Kellermeyer. For this bizarre feat of fandom, the family received a Steam key for the entire Bethesda Softworks library, including all future releases. Prior to the birth, Megan explained why she entered the contest in a blog post, stating, It is an awesome name, and yes, it comes with a fantastic prize. Now, my husband didn't know of the contest to start with. We conceived long before hearing of it, but it's been a tough year and I wanted to do something special for my son. The next competition we'll be looking at comes from Activision way back in 2006. To promote the release of Marvel Ultimate Alliance, Activision held a voice acting competition, giving two fans the chance to star in the game as the Incredible Hulk's brainy alter ego, Bruce Banner, and the super-powered telepath, Jean Grey. I can save Atlantis on my own. The grand prize also included an Xbox 360 with a copy of the game, a poster of the game signed by comic book legend and cameo maestro, the late Stan Lee, as well as a lunch with the game's producers and a paid trip to Los Angeles for the recording. A woman by the name of Sarah Waits became the voice of Jean Grey, however none other than Aaron Hansen, also known as Ego Raptor, was cast as Dr. Bruce Banner in the PSP, Wii and PS3 versions of the game. A high budget big name video game has my voice in it. Whoa, check out Marvel Ultimate Alliance for the PS3, Wii and PSP and take a listen to Dr. Bruce Banner's voice. Don't check out the Xbox 360, PS2, GameCube or Xbox versions though. They do not feature my voice and instead feature some other guy's voice as Bruce Banner. Don't be fooled, I'm only in the other versions due to recording complications and time restraints. I know, I know, but it just goes to show you, only the next gen can handle my voice. The next contest we're featuring never actually made it to fruition. Id Software originally included a contest in Wolfenstein 3D. In Episode 2, Floor 8, right at the end of a particularly challenging secret maze, a sprite can be found reading, Call Apogee, say Ardwolf. The contest was cancelled after numerous cheats and map editors were created. This allowed players to navigate the maze much more easily, thus making the contest trivial. In later versions of the game, a particular part of the maze was blocked off, or the sign had been replaced with a pile of bones. In some versions of the game, letters would also be shown on the score table screen. These letters were planned to be part of another competition where players would call in with their scores and use the letter code to verify it. But again, with cheap programs circulating, this competition was also scrapped. And for this episode's random piece of trivia, we'll be adventuring, however unsuccessfully, to the legendary sunken city of Atlantis. As with many point-and-click games that followed Monkey Island, 1992's Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis did not feature any dead ends. However, it did keep the looming possibility of death for the hero, which was a feature present in previous indie titles. Throughout the game, there are a number of ways for the player to kick the bucket, all of which are followed by a tailored death message. However, one message found within the game's files never actually appears in the final version. The message reads, Suddenly, Indy forgot everything he knew about handling a bullwhip and flogged himself to death. Today we're talking about various unreleased projects relating to the developer Rare. Diddy Kong Racing for the Nintendo 64 was a popular kart racer for its time, selling just under 5 million units. The game did so well, in fact, that a few developers thought about creating a sequel. 
British team Climax Studios pitched a potential sequel to Nintendo around April of 2004, and thanks to video game researcher P2P Online, a few of this game's details have been uncovered. The game was tentatively titled Diddy Kong Racing Adventure, and its story would have had WizPig propose a rematch against Diddy and his friends, with WizPig aiming to pave over a forest. The player would have travelled through 16 different villages, each containing three courses. Villages were styled after a different character within the Donkey Kong Country series, with each being under the control of a different bad guy. The aim was to defeat these enemies in a one-on-one -on -one race and free the villagers. The variety of vehicles would have included buggies, quad bikes, planes, hoverbikes and jet skis. Progression would have allowed upgrades to these vehicles, which would have unlocked access to more areas. New game modes were also considered, such as Demolition Derby mode and a sort of Simon Says game. While the concept aimed to include many of the original characters from the N64 release, it's likely that some would have been scrapped due to Rare's hold on licenses, such as Banjo-Kazooie and Conker's Bad Fur Day. The original game's developer, Rare, were bought by Microsoft in 2002 for $375 million. After a few attempts at traditional games, the team were put forward to create titles for Microsoft's Kinect peripheral. They came up with different ways to use the device, and a large number of prototypes were developed. According to a former member of the team, Nick Burton, we were doing tons of prototype, insane things like giving it to a programmer for 48 hours and telling him to do whatever he liked. One guy did a seagull simulator, being able to poo on passers-by. Another prototype the team had worked on was Savannah, a concept that was put together to provide a realistic look at raising a lion from birth to adulthood. According to ex-member Donica Murphy, the project was put forward by artist Phil Dunn, a veteran at the studio who'd worked on games such as Donkey Kong Country 3 and Killer Instinct 2. Savannah never came to fruition, but a video showing several models from the project did surface. Explaining the project's lack of green lighting within Microsoft, Murphy told Not Enough Shades, It was soon clear that Microsoft were more interested in using Rare to help aim at a younger market. Rare was renowned for their diverse portfolio, so to not be involved in making mature games was a real blow. There were numerous projects that were put forward that I believe would have been huge hits, but Microsoft rejected them one after the other. The team were all interested in creating a sequel to Killer Instinct at this time, but Microsoft weren't interested in creating another fighting game, with Murphy believing that no new Killer Instinct would ever be made. It seems that sadly he left the company prior to the development of Microsoft's free-to-play Killer Instinct release. And for this episode's random piece of trivia, we'll be taking a look at Sega's Arnold Palmer Tournament Golf. If the player hits a ball 100 times on the pitch without sinking it, they'll be taken to the Game Over screen. If the player enters the famous Konami code on this screen, the game will load up a hidden copy of the 1986 classic Sega arcade game, Fantasy Zone. Today we'll be talking about all things love and video games. Love and marriage. Some say they go together like a horse and carriage. But you know what they also say? Love is blind. Love Plus, a dating sim game released exclusively in Japan, lets the player choose one of three girls. The player can then take the girl of their choosing on dates and interact with them in an attempt to obtain their eternal affection. One of these girls, Nene Anagasaki, has now officially tied the knot. A Japanese gamer with the username Sal9000 married his dearly beloved in November of 2009. 
While their interactions are entirely digital, their wedding was anything but virtual. Their ceremony was held in Guam, and while we aren't professionals in marital law, it seems to us that Guam is one of the few places in the world where marrying both inanimate or even imaginary objects is perfectly legal. Media were invited to the reception, which was also broadcast online at the video-sharing website Nico Nico. The couple shared slides of their time shared together in the lead-up to their wedding, before Sal 9000 sealed the deal with a kiss. Oui. Sal 9000 even upgraded his dearest's hardware to the then-newly-released DSi XL. Sal 9000 wished to keep his real name private for fears of being misunderstood. He told Reuters, In the Japanese otaku or nerd culture, there's a tradition of calling characters my wife, and I sort of thought of Nene as my wife. Since I was calling her that, I thought we'd just have to get married then. If more people were to find ways of expressing themselves like this, I think it would make society a bit more interesting. When asked if he would stay with Nene for life, even if a new version of Love Plus was released, of which there have now since been two, Sal stated, I think I'll probably continue playing Love Plus. I won't cheat. Moving on with love that knows no bounds, let's talk about the Khajiit race in the very popular open-world RPG series, The Elder Scrolls. A book within the Elder Scrolls universe named The Real Berenzia contains a whole ten volumes when it first appears in Daggerfall. Unfortunately, the book was reduced to just five volumes when it was carried over to Morrowind, Oblivion, and Skyrim. In the full Daggerfall version, a Khajiit named Theris and Queen Berenzia engage in some physical romance. This was unfortunate for Queen Berenzia, as just like real cats, the Khajiit race have barbs on their penis. Another game that has more than enough love to throw around is Atari and Namco's Galaxian on the ColecoVision. That said, the game's display of love is hidden away in the game's code. The title has two notes left in its data. The first reads, Graphics and Program by James D. Eisenstein, August 11th, 1983, dedicated to the one I love. The second note reveals who this mysterious one is, stating, I love you, Janine. Isn't love just magical? Now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia, and we'll be looking at the 2006 real-time strategy game Company of Heroes. While it may only be a small dig at rival company EA, Relic Entertainment included an easter egg showing their true feelings for the company. In the game, the American side has access to jeeps to use as reconnaissance vehicles. Interestingly, these jeeps all feature the license plate 3A5UX5. When translated from typical internet leet speak, this can be read as EA Suxes. Today, we'll be looking at characters who cameoed in games before making their official debut. Building up to the release of Sonic the Hedgehog, Sega used all kinds of marketing tactics to create hype around the game. This included taking the game to trade shows and making bizarre advertisements. They even decided to put him in another game. Sonic's first video game appearance was in Radmobile, which hit arcades five months before Sonic the Hedgehog's release on the Sega Genesis in North America. Sonic took the form of an air freshener hanging from the top of the screen, with some surprisingly responsive physics at the time. Sega's idea to spotlight Sonic in another game clearly paid off, but our next character doesn't seem to be in a game for promotion. 
In fact, he's barely visible in it at all. While HAL Laboratory were developing Kirby's Dream Land for the Game Boy, they were also developing a role-playing game for the Super Nintendo called Arcana. Although the games have practically nothing in common besides being made by HAL, Kirby makes a sneak appearance in Arcana's opening sequence. Kirby can be seen among a band of evil warriors, and since the art is repeated, there's multiple Kirbys. Arcana released a month before Kirby's Dreamland in Japan, and three months before Dreamland in North America. For our next piece of trivia, we'll be taking a look at a much-loved company, Atlas, and their Persona franchise. The Persona series isn't shy about referencing other games and media, and this is especially true for Persona 3 Portable. In the game, there is an unnamed man drinking alone in Club Escapade. This man is none other than Vincent Brooks, the protagonist of Atlas's puzzle game, Catherine. Vincent gives hints about Catherine and tells the player to remember him, and that if they meet again, he'll tell the player more of his story. Persona 3 Portable came out about a year and a half before Catherine did in Japan, making this a fairly early cameo. In fact, Persona 3 Portable was released before Catherine was even publicly announced. Another character that featured in a game before their franchise debut was Galen Marek, also known as Starkiller. The Sith Apprentice had a playable appearance in Soul Calibur 4, a whole two months prior to the publication of Star Wars The Force Unleashed. Starkiller was unlocked by beating the arcade mode with Yoda in the Xbox 360 version, or Darth Vader in the PlayStation 3 version. And for this episode's random piece of trivia, let's take a look at the Game Boy Color game, Maya the Bee and Her Friends, by Acclaim. Since Maya the Bee isn't very well known outside of Europe, the game's graphics were changed, and it was brought to America as The New Adventures of Mary-Kate and Ashley. But this isn't the first time the game was altered. The title was originally planned as a South Park game, and screenshots of it even exist. Not only this, but the graphics for Cartman, Kenny, Stan and Kyle can still be found in the game's data. Acclaim apparently wanted to base the game on the South Park license, but the show's creators, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, weren't comfortable with this idea. The duo reasoned that, since the Game Boy was marketed towards children, basing the game on the adult-oriented franchise would be irresponsible. Maya the Bee and her friends also contains an unused sprite of itch from The Simpsons. Acclaim were given The Simpsons license multiple times in the 90s, which led to several Game Boy titles being developed. This sprite may be the last remnant of an unreleased Simpsons game. Today we'll be looking at skating and video games. Skating games were quite common during the late 90s and early 2000s. However, gaming has a connection with professional skateboarder Tony Hawk before the skating craze even began. When Tony was low on cash, he would edit videos to help supplement his income, and some of his editing was for video game companies. He presumably used his skills to make advertising material for the Turbo Graphics, known as the PC engine in Japan. Hawk stated, when, when things took a downturn in skating, like I was editing videos for Tom Yeto and actually for like a video game company. Like, <laughs> how ironic, actually. I never thought about that, that I was doing video, video editing for Turbo Graphics, and then I ended up getting a video game myself. Hawk would eventually get his own series of games with Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. The series would often promote characters and celebrities, with releases of Pro Skater games including many cameo appearances in the form of secret characters. For the South Korean release of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2, cameos were even given to a band featured in the Korean game. 
The Korean version of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 includes eight additional tracks performed by the popular K-pop group FinKL. However, the game also allowed players to take control of all of the band's members and perform some gnarly tricks. The localization effort adds the additional characters to the game while also keeping all in-game text in English. Another character with a celebrity connection to the Tony Hawk games came in the fourth Pro Skater title. Jenna Jameson, referred to by many as one of the most famous adult entertainers in the business, had a role within all versions of the game besides the PlayStation release. While not being named directly after her, the unlockable character Daisy is based on the actress in appearance as well as being voiced by Jameson herself. To unlock the character, the player must either complete the game with $100,000 and have found all gaps, or enter the not-so-subtle code shown on screen. This code was revealed by Neversoft in a promotional image that showed Daisy wearing a Santa hat and was shown to players around Christmas time. Neversoft may have included adult themes in the Tony Hawk games, but their engine for Pro Skater 4 was also utilized for something more child-friendly. Disney's Extreme Skate Adventure, created by Toys for Bob, used the Pro Skater engine to create a game which would promote skateboarding to a new generation. The game features an extreme skate crew, with characters all modeled after real children across America. Activision sought out 10 children for the game, all between the ages of 6 and 14. The publisher held live events at skate parks in several cities, which can be seen during the game's opening sequence. Kids were also able to enter the contest by mailing in photographs of themselves, along with tapes of their skills. Activision created a website which featured the 10 chosen kids so that the public could vote on who should be classed as superstars among the lineup. The two chosen were Ryan and Malianne, who would be featured on the skate stage alongside the various film characters also playable in the game. And for this episode's random piece of trivia, let's look at Ninja Gaiden 2 on the Xbox 360. In Chapter 4, A Captive Goddess, a room with some boards can be found. Destroying these boards will reveal a silver X, which can be examined to play the Xbox 360 boot sound. Examining the X will also restore the player's health. This object is actually based on the Direct Xbox, an unused design created during the development of the original Xbox. In this episode, we're going to be talking about figurines, toys, and video games. Nintendo launched their lineup of amiibo toys back in November of 2014, where they were met with a mixed but generally favorable response. Nintendo moving into the toys-to-life figurine market resulted in a huge volume of profit for the video game giant, with new amiibo continuously selling out. However, it seems that Rare had a similar idea to amiibo back in the days of the Nintendo 64. According to Chris Seaver, creator of Conker's Bad Fur Day, Rare founders Chris and Tim Stamper wanted to do amiibo-style things with toys during the Nintendo 64 era. Rare even made amiibo-like figures of two characters from a cancelled Xbox 360 fantasy game called Urchin. These renders were made about nine years before Amiibo were released, but since the game was cancelled in 2006, they'll remain concept art unless Rare ever revives the project. Another popular Toys to Life game is Skylanders, a series that has divided many fans of the Spyro series. But with Skylanders Supercharges, Activision was given permission to use the likeness of both Bowser and Donkey Kong. Other Nintendo characters were also considered for cameo appearances, but ultimately they were disagreed upon. 
Plans for a warrior Princess Peach were put forward, but Nintendo refused the idea as it seemed out of character for Peach. This led to all other Mario characters being off-limits as well. Activision even wanted to include Kirby, who would have been able to suck up enemies and bounce around the stage. But because the rights to the character are partially owned by HAL, the team were unable to gain a license to use him. The last Nintendo character considered was Fox McCloud, who was requested for the game as the Skylanders Supercharges world has a particularly heavy focus on vehicles. However, Nintendo felt that having Fox in the game might pull interest away from their own game, Star Fox Zero, which was to launch around the same time. Speaking of Star Fox Zero, Nintendo wanted to make an R-Wing amiibo for the game that could transform. According to series developer Shigeru Miyamoto, the amiibo would have been capable of transforming between its R-Wing state and its walker state, just like in the game. Miyamoto told Game Informer, we were working on a couple of ideas for the game for well over a year. We had an R-Wing amiibo that would transform into the walker, but it was really tough to execute that in the normal amiibo size and in a way that met with product safety standards. We had to give up on it. There's also been some speculation that we didn't get an R-Wing amiibo at all due to these safety standards, as the R-Wing would have been too pointy for children to play with in a safe manner. And now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia, and we're talking Shining Force. The original Shining Force game contains a secret recruitable unit for the player's army, named Yogurt. Yogurt appears as a helmet-wearing hamster with some bizarre properties. Being viewed as a comic relief character in the game, most of his stats are just one point, and he can't actually level up. If the player somehow manages to defeat an enemy with him, they will be rewarded with the Yogurt Ring, an item which causes those who equip it to turn into Yogurt during battle. However, this transformation will only affect the character's appearance and they will retain all of their stats. Additionally, according to a Japanese Shining Force book, the character Yogurt and all of his kind are strange creatures which originate from the evil planet Yogurt. And today we'll be talking about hidden messages in games. Many video games have hidden messages somewhere in their code, and though most of them are just labels or notes for co-workers, some of them are more meaningful. One of these meaningful messages can be found within the data of the Game Boy game Bart Simpson's Escape from Camp Deadly. Using the game's debug options, it's possible to access some unused rooms at the end of the game's first level. These rooms have writing in their backgrounds, and when strung together, they form a message. The text reads, I love Maria. I promise to live with you and to be faithful to you for the rest of our lives. I promise to support and encourage you in the pursuit of your goals, and I promise to make a loving home with you. Mark and Maria saw the world, June 1990. This love letter was left by the game's programmer, Mark D. Klein. A much less heartwarming series of messages can be found in the Nintendo 64 puzzle game, The New Tetris. The game's lead programmer, David Priddy, left a series of rants in the data of The New Tetris. David assumed no one would ever find the rants, but they were discovered just a few days after its release. This seems to have gotten Pretty and the studio he worked at, H2O, in a bit of trouble with Nintendo. David's rants were mainly targeted at his co-workers, who David implied were incompetent. He accused the game's producer, Don McClure, of playing StarCraft and EverQuest when he should have been working, as well as lacking basic development knowledge and skills. David wrapped up his criticism of Don by saying, So Don, I must say this, hold on to and fake your job while you can, because once they find out how truly useless you are, you will be out of the job. 
David praised the game's musician, Neil Voss, but also went on to say he was lazy. David also left a list of his 56 most hated things, which included people with Kleenex, plants, knitted blankets, stuffed animals, or lacy things in their car's rear window. I should be allowed to pull over and shoot them. Other developers have also left heated messages in their games, and some of them were left specifically to be read by certain individuals. Examples of this can be seen in the various Amiga versions of Jurassic Park by Ocean Software. It appears that one developer left some messages for people who intended to crack and pirate the game. A message in the Amiga AGA version of the game reads, Crack this game and you die. I'm not kidding. I know who you all are. You have been warned. A message in the Amiga ECS version of Jurassic Park is even more unhinged, reading, Message to f paraplegic and all the other heads. Better luck this time. Try and remove more that 20% of the protection this time, you useless cunts. Isn't it time you stopped pulling your dicks and left your bedrooms and got a real job? And for something less profane, let's move on to this episode's random piece of trivia. Today we're talking about the early 2000s vampire-centric hack and slasher, Blood Rain. At one point in the game, the player will come to an elevator that leads to several rooms. Inside one of the rooms is nothing but a shovel and a crate. Breaking open the crate will reveal what appears to be the Ark of the Covenant from the Indiana Jones film Raiders of the Lost Ark. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, Nazis try to acquire the Ark to help win World War II by supernatural means. This reference is appropriate as Blood Rain's villains, the GGG, are also seeking out supernatural means of bringing power to Germany. In this episode, we're going to be talking about obscure versions of games. Limited releases and special editions of games are nothing new, and thanks to the internet, recent special editions of games are fairly well documented. Due to a lack of freely available documentation, however, special editions of many retro titles have fallen into obscurity. In the 1980s, Nintendo released a series of multiplayer versus arcade machines with special versions of popular titles within their library of games. These included versus Excitebike, versus Pinball, and versus Tennis. Perhaps the rarest of these machines, however, was an obscure spin-off of their versus stroke and match golf arcade game titled Versus Ladies Golf. It seems the only difference in Ladies Golf is that Nintendo swapped out the male golfer's sprite with that of a female one. Despite Nintendo's efforts, there seemed to be very little interest in the game. Versus Ladies Golf was reported very unsuccessful at the time, which contributed to its extreme rarity. This wouldn't be Nintendo's only rare arcade machine, with cabinets of Punch-Out and Super Punch-Out also proving to be quite elusive. The reason for this is due to the way the game functioned in arcades, featuring a double-screen setup. These cabinets follow the same specifications for Nintendo PlayChoice 10 machines, which would feature instructions on one screen and gameplay on the other. Nintendo sold a conversion kit to help arcade operators convert these old Punch-Out! series machines into PlayChoice 10 cabinets. Since these modified cabinets could store up to 10 games, they would likely draw more players. This led to many Punch-Out! cabinets being converted to increase profits, and also resulted in Punch-Out! and Super Punch-Out! machines being significantly harder to find. Nintendo was quite open to the idea of special editions back in the 80s and early 90s. In 1986, they even helped release a special edition of Super Mario Bros., which was exclusively given out to contest winners of the Japanese radio show All Night Nippon. 
Instead of being published by Nintendo, it seems to have been published by Fuji Television, who owned the station that broadcast the show. The game was essentially a remixed version of the original Super Mario Bros., but it also included some elements from the Japanese Super Mario Bros. 2, which is known as the Lost Levels in the West. Some of the game's visuals were modified to resemble celebrities from the All Night Nippon Show and the Nippon Broadcasting System radio station. And for this episode's random trivia, let's talk about Guitar Hero 3. The game included the chart-topping hit Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses, which was added to the game after frontman Axl Rose made a deal with Activision. The deal included a promise from Activision that the game would feature no reference to ex-Guns N' Roses guitarist Slash. Activision not only featured Slash prominently in the game and its promotional material, but also included Slash's post-Guns N' Roses band, Velvet Revolver. After Axl Rose learned of this breach in agreement, he attempted to sue Activision for $20 million, but did so too late. Rose's filing was made in November of 2010, over three years after the game's 2007 release. This resulted in his claims being dismissed in court. Commenting on the late filing in his deposition, Rose stated, The reason I did not file a lawsuit is because Activision offered me a separate video game and other business proposals worth millions of dollars to resolve and settle my claims relating to Guitar Hero 3. From December 2007 through November 2010, Activision was offering me a Guns N' Roses dedicated video game. If an oral contract is broken, it's only possible to file for a lawsuit within two years of the incident that broke the agreement. And since it had been three years since his agreement with Activision, Rose had no grounds to sue. Today we'll be looking at unique advertising methods in the game industry. Brand promotion within games is nothing new. Advertisements for real-world products spring up all the time in virtual worlds, with some games even being based on these brands entirely. Parappa the Rapper 2 took part in one of these deals, but not for the game's final release. Demo discs with preview builds of both Parappa the Rapper 2 and the Japanese exclusive Ape Escape 2001 were once sold by McDonald's in Japan. This was to cross-promote both McDonald's and the games, which came on discs titled The McDonald's Happy Disc. In this demo version of Parappa the Rapper 2, the game's first level, in which Parappa prepares burgers in a generic fast food joint, instead takes place inside a McDonald's. Master Beard can also be seen wearing a McDonald's branded apron, and McDonald's iconography can be seen within the game's UI. With the demo of Ape Escape, loading screens show the apes eating McDonald's burgers, and within the game itself, McDonald's advertising can be seen plastered around on buildings and blimps. There's also the occasional giant floating burger and fries. The disc also came with a promotional video of an ape and a man wearing a rainbow afro running around New York City. Taking a pretty big leap in style, let's take a look at the real-time strategy series Command & Conquer. To promote the game, Virgin Interactive, the game's publisher, put an ad into British magazines featuring the mugshot of several historical politicians and military leaders, including both Hitler and Stalin. Also on the poster is Jacques Chirac, the then-current French president who had been in a lot of hot water for his decisions to test nuclear weapons in the South Pacific. The ad rubbed several news organizations the wrong way. The Independent's Tom Wilkie wrote an open letter to the company to voice his issues, as well as seeming to point the blame to to nerd culture at that time. What sort of nerds are you employing? I can imagine them saying to themselves, gosh, that's really witty, using mass murderers to promote a consumer product. 
it's not witty, it's crass, ignorant and stupid. It's also, I would have thought, actionable. They also state that the company promoted Doom 2 by sending journalists sheep's entrails, and that the only lesson they learned from this stunt was that crass, nerdish ignorance sells. If the writer's feelings weren't already obvious, he goes on to insult Virgin Interactive, stating, We are being deracinated by you and your kind. Your nerds probably will need to consult their CD-ROM dictionary for that one. I hope Mr. Chirac sues for every penny you have. Moving on to something a bit more recent, EA's popular racing game Burnout Paradise also features politicians, but this was because politicians actually bought advertising space within the title. In the game, billboards could be seen across Paradise City, which EA could control and change. In 2008, the campaign for then-presidential candidate Barack Obama paid for their ads to appear on Burnout's billboards within 10 states. The sign, with the tag, paid for by Obama for president, reminded players that early voting had begun. And for today's random piece of trivia, we'll be taking a look at the acclaimed survival horror sequel, Resident Evil 2. At the police station in Scenario A, the player meets Marvin Branner as he rests against a locker. A tag on the locker reads, Jojo. This was confirmed by Hideki Kamiya to be a reference to the manga and anime series Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. It could even be a nod to Capcom's JoJo's Bizarre Adventure fighting game, which came out in the same year as Resident Evil 2. The reference also appears in the 2019 Resident Evil 2 remake. And today, we'll be talking about voice acting secrets in video games. We all know everyone's favourite grizzled, gravelly-voiced espionage expert, Snake, from the Metal Gear series. And it's no secret that Snake is based on Snake Plissken from the dystopian sci-fi action flick Escape from New York. But what if we told you that the face of this character, Kurt Russell, could have been the voice actor for Naked Snake in Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater? David Hayter had been the voice of Solid Snake and Big Boss for more than a decade, before losing the role to Kiefer Sutherland for Metal Gear Solid 5, much to the dismay of some fans. However, it seems as though Kojima had been trying to recast their starring role for some time. David Hayter said, I had to re-audition for Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater to play Naked Snake. They made me re-audition to play Old Snake in Metal Gear Solid 4, and the whole time they were trying to find someone else to do it. I heard that Kojima asked one of the producers on Metal Gear Solid 3 to ask Kurt Russell if he would take over for that game. He didn't want to do it. And continuing the discussion of voice actors in high-profile games, let's take a look at the Resident Evil series. Richard Warch, the second voice actor for Albert Wesker, was inspired by the main antagonist of the Walt Disney adaptation of The Jungle Book. This, of course, is the vicious yet suave man-eating tiger, Shere Khan. It was in fact the intimidating, albeit soothing voice of the tiger that influenced Richard. Richard said he liked the idea of the military-type character having a cultured, chocolatey voice like George Sanders. Moving on from one Disney property to another, Oscar Isaac, best known for his role as Poe Dameron in the Star Wars franchise, also lent his voice to the Force Awakens section of Disney's Infinity. However, this wasn't his first attempt at voice acting within a game. Though it's not clear what role he was meant to play in the title, Isaac revealed that he was fired from his voice role in EA's Dante's Inferno. In a conversation with Devin Faraci from Birth Movies Death, I had done a video game before, but I got fired off it. I think they just thought I was bad. It was such a shitty game though, Dante's Inferno. Terrible. I had no choice. It was a forced dodge. And now it's time for this episode's random piece of trivia, and we're talking about Sega. As part of their advertising campaign for the launch of the Dreamcast in Europe, Sega struck an official sponsorship deal with the Arsenal Football Club in the Premier League. 
The team wore Dreamcast shirts when they played in their home stadium in London and wore Sega shirts when they played away in other stadiums. This was an attempt to raise awareness of the Dreamcast, but it seems that Sega should have done a little more research before taking the plunge. The Arsenal team were frequently mocked when playing against Italian teams. This is because the word Sega can be perceived as a vulgar word in Italian, especially when put into a certain context. The phrase Farsi una Sega can mean to wank or jerk off. To get an idea of how it was for Italian spectators to see Sega everywhere, Imagine having the slang word for masturbate printed across a team's shirt. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.